0: Another episode of Britanology, episode four, I do believe.
1: It is, in fact, number
0: four. Yeah, an an odyssey into uh, the minds of the British people and the things which drive them to ever greater success in the war on being normal. Um, This week, uh, as ever, I'm joined by my loyal co-host, Nate (laughs) Bethay.
1: Hello, it's wonderful to be back. We're having a banner week in Britain. Normal things are happening, uh, but some of them I feel are informed by a deep psychosis for everyone over, let's say, the age of 55 in Britain who thinks they personally fought in World War II, even though to be a World War II veteran at this point, you probably got to be in your 90s. Yeah. I mean, they've inhaled enough
0: leaded petrol fumes in their childhood that they really believe they fought in World War II, and in a way, that's all that matters.
1: So we're going to talk, and Milo's going to lead this, but we're going to talk about a particularly cursed decade in the history of the United Kingdom, which is the 1970s. Yeah. Uh, if you know anything about the history of the 1970s in the world, you have two big problems. You've got the oil crisis in 1973 and in 1979. Uh, you also have the British currency was devalued in the late 60s uh, and inflation started to run rampant when the Bretton Woods' system was introduced, uh, basically, when countries went off the gold standard. Now, this is not a gold standard podcast. However, Britain- Wait, what? (laughs) had some particularly cursed responses to inflation. And to the oil crises, and by the this was marked by the Winter of Discontent, a six-week period of industrial action in the late seventies that everyone is convinced was ten times worse than it was, and that they all personally lived through, even though they probably did not. Mm. Milo, you told me once that your parents both will never vote Labor because of the Winter of Discontent, because it's so ingrained and. People are convinced that bodies part were... part
0: of what radicalised the boomers. Yeah, 100%. People are convinced
1: that bodies were piling up in the streets where there was a grave digger strike in like Merseyside that lasted for two weeks, uh, but everyone's convinced that bodies were piling up in the street around the entire country, which is not, in fact, the case. So it no, was about... just because of the craze. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because Formative... in those
0: days, you could do a murder without a fucking political correctness brigade saying
1: you can't concrete a body into the M40. Um... See, in 1970... Uh, you had the initial episodes of Monty Python. By 1979, you had Dave Courtney in his sword fight in the Chinese restaurant. Exactly, it was a very powerful decade in the early <laughs> 70s. Like, honestly,
0: like you know, uh, early Hong Kong cinema has nothing on the life of Dave Courtney.
1: Exactly. In the early 70s, you have the three-day work week, which Ratching
0: was like a hidden geezer. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you have the three-day work week, which is a response to the oil crisis and uh, the need to save electricity, in which businesses around the country switched to a three-day work week. This is not a lie. This absolutely absolutely happened. Uh, You have a very, yeah, very deeply cursed period of what you might call just incredible decay and general malaise that Mm. then led in May 1979 to the election of Margaret Thatcher and the rest is history. Everything got worse, but some people got richer. Everything became extremely good after that point. Um, uh, and so to talk about, we're not going to talk about the history of the 1970s m- much more than what I've just summarized, because I feel like uh, there is one very important point, which is that uh, under a labor government, they started cutting the social safety net and cutting government spending in anticipation of an IMF bailout that they wound up not needing because they had done the figures wrong. This is not made up. Uh awesome. So basically, the 1970s, in common memory in the United Kingdom, sucked. Uh, My mom considered moving back to the United Kingdom when she uh, finished college, but she came and visited her relatives and said, this place fucking sucks. I am definitely not staying here. Uh, And we're going to talk about the cultural importance of a couple of things, one being dad's army, the other being Jimmy Savile. So Milo can take it away.
0: There's gonna. So I'm. I'm tentatively calling this uh that '70s episode because <laughs> I feel like uh yeah. Well, what we're gonna do is we're gonna try and uh explain, but like something about Britain through the the kind of the cultural mores and more than that the personalities that emerged from the 1970s because I think that. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of fascination with like the peculiarities of like British cultural affects and indeed the celebrities that the seventies spawned and it's worth it's worth exploring, right? Um I think for me the most important thing that you can possibly understand about Britain in the 1970s is that you could buy seven pints of beer in a paint tin. And once you know that, I feel like everything else makes a lot more sense.
1: I one time out of out of curiosity watched a video of british advertisements from the 1970s that was made into a youtube compilation and the best way i can describe it was Boy,
0: are you drunk driving Go a, a bit slower mate s-
1: single one was about <laughs> drunk driving and it was just drunk driving in scotland drunk driving in the north drunk driving in the <laughs> england in the midlands you learned all these accents about like <laughs> oh, i've got to get home from the pub somehow <laughs> i'm a bit pissed Go a bit slower mate don't crash your fucking car <laughs> Ozzy Osbourne, <laughs> yeah. taking it away. Sharon, I'm drunk. <laughs> I've <laughs> got Great, to drive the the Sharon.
0: Sharon, you got to buy the 4th Cortina, Sharon. <laughs> I need to sober up, Sharon. I've got to have a bat. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, yes, I mean, so I, I, I feel like at yeah, the end of the... Um, you had a you had a prime minister who went slower, slowly more insane, and was convinced that MI five was trying to overthrow him. It turned out he was right. This <laughs> is yeah. Harold Wilson in his uh, second premiership. You had a a prime minister, a Tory prime minister, who was elected, and it was it strongly, strongly suggested that uh, he had some, um, let's say. Upper class English problems, aka nonsing. Mm. Uh, that has never been confirmed, but there there have been a significant number of rumors about Ted Heath. Uh, they didn't have the VAR technology then, so there not, could be yeah. no VAR decision. Um, you had a, uh, a a prime minister who. Was famously on at like some kind of I think a Commonwealth conference in like somewhere in the West Indies during shit getting really really bad in the 1970s, and he came back basically sunburned as fuck. Cause no British man of a certain age will ever wear sunscreen. Um right. and uh and basically, for, which which British don't do blackface, we do red face. Exactly. That's that's why every British guy you meet abroad has no sunglasses and no sunscreen. But long story short, you went from the, the sort of white hot heat of technology uh, proposed by. Uh, Harold Wilson in the 1960s, too. By 1979, people were like, oh, yeah, Britain's going to get downgraded to a developing country status if this shit continues <laughs> on. So a lot of things happened. It was weird and bad. But mo- I-, I think what Milo's point is really trenchant here. It's the decade that radicalized the boomers, and we are now paying the price and will until all of them are gone. Uh,
0: yeah, there's like there's nothing that can be done with that generation, honestly. Um, so uh, another another quick hit before we really get into the meat of the 1970s Um is uh, you need to understand something from 2011, uh, ye oldie, ye oldie, 2011, when Pretty Patel was like, bring back, bring back hanging. We all remember 2011. Tayo Krause was in the charts. Um, 2011. So in 2011, uh, the Metropolitan Police uh, launched this thing they called Operation U Tree, um, which is basically uh, may as well have been called Operation Catch the 1970s Nonces. and uh, it's a really It's a really weird bit of police history in the UK because they basically uncovered a lot of, like really shocking just like child abuse that had been going on amongst like really famous people who've been like famous for a long time and are at kind of like kind of very establishment levels in like the british media class but they also arrested a fuckload of people who literally did absolutely nothing it's a really weird like like half the people they arrested were like holy shit these guys were like mega nonces who were like at the highest levels of british society and then half the other people they arrested it was like there was literally no evidence to implicate this person at all, so it's got like a really weird, like mixed bag kind of history. Like, there's been like a lot of controversies about it, but essentially, they kind of they started pulling at the thread of British
1: nonces, and uh, they found out how deep the rabbit hole went. There were two really big ones uh, that, I, that come to mind immediately. The 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 one you may not have heard of is a guy named Cyril Smith. He was a Liberal MP for the Liberal Party before they became the SDP LP, and then now the Liberal Democrats. It was then later, if I'm not mistaken, a, a Liberal lord yes before they invented the swin zone yeah exactly before before skills wallets and massacring squirrels there was cyril Mm -hmm. smith who was like 550 pounds i might be exaggerating but not that much he literally weighed like 400 pounds he was a a beast of a man he was huge he was a thick boy he'd tear you to shreds he was an mp from rochdale which is joe rogan nonce jesus christ rochdale is what like kind of nearest to liverpool isn't it like it's, it's, somewhere- in, it's in the north. Yeah, it's, it's deeply
0: north. Don't um, ask me a southern man where places in the north are.
1: Anyway, he, he was famous for basically going on grand tours of different like wayward boys' homes in his constituency and just like abusing children. And this was all known to everyone. However, much like the next person I will bring up, uh, this was known to everyone and then only became public once he was already dead. Similarly, the famous TV show host of a show called Jim Will uh, Fix It Jimmy Mm. Savile, who looks like off-brand Rod Stewart with a just deeply evil grin. And if you ever see videos of him, for some reason, he's often dressed for what looks like a sex safari. Okay, I mean I think I think we're being a little bit unfair to Rod Stewart there. Uh Jimmy Savile
0: looks a little bit like the uh the preserved corpse of Jeremy Bentham. Like, imagine it like a sort of accursed zombie Benjamin Franklin, and that's kind of in a tracksuit. You know
1: Phil Spector, the producer, like with like the weird page boy haircut that mm. he he kept wearing till he was like 70 years old? That was Jimmy Savile. But he also, well, Milo, you know the story better than I do. Let's just say no one who knew Jimmy Savile or who was involved with Jim or Jim will fix it or any of his other productions was surprised when this came out. Yeah. Cause right. What you've got to understand about Jim, Jimmy
0: Savile is that Jimmy Savile almost lived his life. He is like the British Michael Jackson in the sense that he lived his life as if wearing a big sign that said, I am a pedophile. And then there were just people going like, oh, this guy can't be a pedophile. What, what? Yeah, he's wearing the sign that says, I'm a pedophile. But would a pedophile do that? You know, if you had something to hide, the last thing you would do would be to do exactly what a pedophile would do in every single situation.
1: I feel like one of the reasons why I, it's 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 dumb bullshit, but one of the reasons why there is so much traction for the constant, constant allegations about grooming gangs and stuff in the United Kingdom is that there is form for this in terms of authorities just choosing to ignore like systemic scale child abuse in the UK and it's happened a lot in the history of this country and the most recent case was obviously like when it was revealed that a guy who had basically gotten every kind of fucking honor you could get from the British government military academic establishment whatever the fuck had been abusing children for 40 years?
0: Yeah, it's all it's all very normal stuff. You know, it just, (laughs) like, I think the weird thing, though, about Savile is that when, when all the stuff about him came out, people were shocked, but they were only shocked at, like, the extent of it. Like, I didn't know anyone who was like, oh... Like, what a surprise. Like, they're kind of, like, generally speaking, even amongst the wider general public, like, Jimmy Savile was considered to be, like, son it up with that guy. Like, you couldn't look... I mean, like, Google... We'll give you a moment. Google a picture of Jimmy Savile right now and tell me that that's not a man who looks like a nonce because <laughs> it's impossible. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you a little bit. So the, the thing that made Jimmy Savile really famous was he had a TV show called Jim Will Fix It, which you alluded to earlier, which is a television show on which the guests were primarily children. (laughs) Yup. And he would make their wishes come true. Um, I'm now going to read a section from the show's Wikipedia page and, uh, you know, just just, just react however you feel. The show was hosted by Savile, who would fix it for the wishes of several viewers, brackets usually children, to come true each week. The producer throughout the show's run was Roger Audish, always referred to by Savile as Dr. Magic. The standard format was that the viewer's letter, which described their wish, would be shown on the screen and read out loud, initially by Savile, but in later series by the viewer himself as a voiceover in the studio. Savile would then introduce The Fix, which would either have been pre-filmed on location or take place live in the studio. At the end, the viewer would join Savile to be congratulated and presented with a large medal with the words, Jim fixed it for me engraved on it. Occasionally, other people featured in The Fix It. Actors from well-known series, for example. I found out that Muhammad Ali had a cameo role on this, which is kind of an amusing tidbit. Um, anyway, Savile himself played no part in the filming or recording of The Fix It unless specifically requested as part of the letter Rider's wish. Some children apparently thought that Savile's first name was Jimmel, so some letters shown on the programme started with "Dear Jimmel." Um, my favourite detail is this part: early series saw Savile distributing medals from a magic chair, which concealed the medals in a variety of compartments. Um, and he would like often have like the children like sat on his lap and stuff. And he, he was quite often like wearing a like a full tracksuit. <laughs> he was basically he he was he was like an off an off looking dude.
1: It was weird, yeah. It's one of those things where, how to describe it? Imagine, imagine Mr. Rogers, but instead of dressing like conservative grandpa, he dresses like what a guy in the nineteen seventies who's way too old to be dressing this way thinks someone in a disco would wear, mm. and is constantly involved with I don't know, like a kind of creepy showmanship that you can't hide the creepiness even in the like stage managed and produced part. Of course there is the sort of you know, you you look at it differently now because you know the story. But what you have to realize above all else, Charles Dickens' voice, what you have to realize is a significant amount, as the series went on, of the children requesting that Jim will fix things were sick. They were ill. There there was Mm. stuff going on with kids who were like were in hospital. That becomes very important later on in the story.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that. So a little bit about Savile himself. So Savile's from Yorkshire, um, and uh, he basically started out as like a, a sort of local DJ. He is apparently credited with being the first person to invent using two turntables as a DJ. So there you go. If you're a DJ, you do owe something to Jimmy Saville. Um, and so uh, apparently he was briefly a professional wrestler, which is one of those facts that just raises more questions than it answers um and he was he was like a mega like fitness freak he was like into like running marathons all the time and shit um so he basically like kind of worked his way up through djing and he he hosted top of the pops uh which was like a show they used to have uh, on tv in britain which i think got canceled in like the mid 2000s uh where they would just play they would have like top 40 artists come and like play their songs like yeah. live they on were TV. lip-syncing but like yeah, yeah, was, yeah, yeah.
1: You, if you know bands from the era you know, you'll see like live performances of people from, um, yeah, from places like, like I've seen, you know, top of the pops for like bands all the way up until the early 2000s was the thing, but it was a yeah, huge yeah, yeah, thing yeah. in the 80s and 90s for sure.
0: Yeah, I have a vivid memory, of, like when I was a teenager, of uh, Eminem performing toy soldiers on there. So that tells you how late it was. Yeah. We're talking like at least two thousand six, two thousand seven.
1: I remember seeing Blur on Top of the Pops uh, in a recap because famously they didn't like the fact that they had to lip sync, so they just all took ecstasy. And so if you watch them, like they aren't lip syncing and their eyes are wider than fuck. So it's a normal British TV show. Awesome, yeah
0: just just having a fucking a, a regular day. Um, uh, and so now, now we get to this important part, right? So during his lifetime, Savile was known for fundraising and supporting charities and hospitals, in particular Stoke Mandeville Hospital in Aylesbury, Leeds General Infirmary and Broadmoor Hospital in Berkshire. Broadmoor Hospital is a uh, a secure mental hospital uh, for uh, people who have committed crimes but are deemed to be like unfit to stand trial or to be better off, basically, in a mental institution than in a uh, prison. I don't know if there are any inmates at Broadmoor who aren't convicted of crimes. I'm not sure on that, but it's, that's what it's... Certainly in, like, the British imagination, that is, like, the psychiatric prison. Um, and so, like, a lot of, like, really infamous, like, serial killers and stuff, they're all kind of, like, locked up there. Um, and uh, so, anyway, as a result of all this charity work, he was given, like, a load of honours, and he became quite matey with <laughs> Margaret Thatcher. Um, yet another famous figure from the 1970s. Weird how that happens. Uh, yes, and... Um, she died, I think, before the Savile thing came out or slightly after. Yeah. Was there? A, yeah, I think she died in 2013 and I think Savile died in maybe 2011. 2011, I think, yeah. yeah. So it's kind of circa the same sort of time. Um, anyway, so yeah. But it, basically it turns out that this whole time he was using all of this charity work as a way to pursue his passion for noncing and like... You know, I don't really want to like rank severity of sex crimes, but like Jimmy Savile's are like particularly gross and abhorrent.
1: For for Americans who may not be familiar with the slang, why are you listening to Trash Future if you aren't familiar with British slang at this point, I will just say what Milo is saying is that Jimmy Savile used his position to gain access to mentally or physically unwell children so he could sexually abuse them. Yeah. And he was
0: doing this like in hospitals and like care homes and kind of and the whole thing is like extremely grim. Yeah. Um and I think that was that was like the extent to which it was shocking. I think if it had been like him trying it on with some underage girls in his dressing room or something, I don't think people would have been surprised at all.
1: That's the thing that John Peel, it turned out after he died, the, the, the BBC DJ had done. He was famous for like being creepy with teenage girls. But John Peel's legacy hasn't quite been, it hasn't been like enshrined in the British consciousness as like this guy was a fucking creep. Because yeah. Jimmy Savile's was so much worse. Yeah, and also, it's important to know uh, what Jimmy Savile was
0: like, right? Which kind of, it's so easy to, like, imagine this man as a huge creep because he just acted like a huge creep all the time. Um, So here's another passage from his Wikipedia. Savile was frequently spoofed for his dress sense, which usually featured a tracksuit or shell suit and gold jewelry. A range of licensed fancy dress costumes were released with his consent in 2009. (laughs) Damn, imagine having 10,000 of those to sell and then 2011 happens. Yikes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Savile was often pictured holding a cigar. Uh, Yeah, always smoking a cigar. He claimed to have started smoking cigars at the age of seven, saying my dad gave me a drag on one at Christmas, thinking it would put me off them forever, but it had the opposite effect. I think here we just need the drop of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about stogies. (laughs) (laughs) My wife's father, he likes a stogie. Now no one can say to me anything about my stogie. I smoke a stogie whenever I want. Why don't you smoke a stogie? Are you gay or something?
1: (laughs) Yeah, Um, I mean, well, I mean, letting a seven-year-old smoke a cigar is an energy, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's true or not, but there's just something about just like imagining just like Yorkshire in the 1940s of just like Jimmy Savile's father in a flat cap holding a whippet, just like giving him a puff on a cigar.
1: Well, what is the one of the things in his background was he was a Bevan boy, which if I'm not mistaken is like. Children who were working for the war effort, kind of thing, is that something to that effect? I'm, uh, something like that, yeah. I'm not sure exactly what it involved, but yeah, so, I mean, like his his life trajectory is. I mean, he was a miner as a child, like a, like a, as a young man, like 14 years old. Um, he participated in the war effort to some extent. So, like, and he... miners continued to be a passion of his. Oh, Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. Basically, he he had the sort of life trajectory of someone who you know came from a like a famously not metropolitan part of the country and became like this cultural icon but as you said hiding nowhere beneath the surface was yeah the savile problem and uh i mean so we've got, we've kind of we've tackled the heavy shit with
0: jimmy savile now i now have some some light because something something that you really can't get over with jimmy savile is just like how weird he is as a like just yeah, I'm just going to read it. Savile was a member of Mensa and the Institute of Advanced Motorists and drove a Rolls-Royce. He was made a life member of the British Gypsy Council in 1975, becoming the first outsider to be made a member. He was the chieftain of the Lock Arbor Highland Games for many years and owned a house in Glencoe. His appearance on the final edition of Top of the Pops in 2006 okay, well that's it, um, was pre-recorded because it clashed with the Highland Games. My man, my man tossing a caber. That's how it is, man. <laughs> Honorary Scott, honorary traveler. What a a just diverse range of interests this man had. Um, uh, Yeah, so then it's also about so through his support of charity, Savile became a friend of Margaret Thatcher who in 1981 described his work as marvelous. It has been reported that Savile spent 11 consecutive New Year's Eves at Chequers with Thatcher and her family. Do you know what this fucking means? This means that Mark Mark Thatcher grew up around Jimmy Savile. Normal. Now then, now then, now then want to become the ruler of, a, of an equatorial African state. <laughs> Fucking hell. Okay, well. Th- this is another important thing to know about Jimmy Savile is he was known for all these like weird catchphrases such as now, then, now, then, now, then,
1: and uh, the band was, sure, <laughs> what Yeah, his accent is, is something else. I mean, it's not the strongest, but it's, it's there. Yeah,
0: it's a yeah, and but, but there was a terrible band in the seventies called Shawaddy Waddy. For some reason, they were just always on. Jim will fix it.
1: Milo um, showed me a video of them, and I, I strongly recommend that you take a look at it because ultimately, what stands out to me is everyone is wearing a different color pastel leisure suit. It's just, or not even pastel. They basically represent the entirety of the fucking color spectrum in horrible seventies suits in ways that I've only seen people wear in the United States as like parodies of the 1970s, but this is the real Mm. thing. And they play music that sounds like, like a shit tier version of the Bay city rollers. Like it's just not good.
0: Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like the Bay City Rollers if they were being done by Glee. It's kind of got a very weird. Yeah, it's lots of like d- doo-wopping and like it, it's very it's very old-fashioned by the standards of the nineteen seventies. Strangely,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, because when this stuff was being filmed, it was the late seventies. So I mean, it's just it's weird. It it, it seems a little it's almost
0: like quite fifties in its vibe.
1: Yeah, I, I would say I would say when you watch this stuff, British TV now is different than American. It's a little bit weird, but like technically speaking outfits attitudes etc it's not that it's not it's it's, it has more in common with American TV than it does yeah uh, you know uh differences I suppose but you look at this stuff it's it looks like something not out of a different time but out of a parallel universe yeah, yeah.
0: It's, it looks it looks kind of like a sketch or something, like from some like incredibly dark sketch show, just this guy in a tracksuit introducing a band who are all wearing shirts that are somehow like twice the
1: size of their entire body. I mean, there was one that you showed me where Jimmy Savile does the whole episode wearing a completely open shirt, like just oh, like chest yeah. out, like he's in like the Hungry Like the Wolf video. I mean, <laughs> it's weird, weird shit. I'm hungry like the wolf. <laughs> uh,
0: yes, I mean, uh, we're not saying anything about the members of Duran Duran. Um, uh, so now we get to my favorite part of Jimmy Savile, which is the, all the all of the honors that he received, which were revoked after his death, some of which are kind of incredible. So uh, in the 70s, he was given an honorary Green Beret by the Royal Marines, um so for american listeners the reason why american special forces are called green berets is because they came out of the world war ii commandos the royal marines which were kind of what came out of our uh, special forces of the day also are called royal marines commandos and they also wear green berets so getting a green beret in the royal marines is like a very serious thing and you have to do all this kind of like fucked up shit to get it their training lasts like almost two years um, and uh, Jimmy Savile completed the commando speed march, which is like infamously the hardest thing on that. You have to basically like walk 30 miles with like a load of shit in an f- incredibly short amount of time. I'm not sure exactly what it is. Um, and uh, he was buried with his green beret, like fucking clutching it in the coffin. And uh, they approached the Royal Marines for comment about whether they were able to re- rescind the green beret, and they were like, "It's very embarrassing, but actually, we're not legally allowed to rescind the green beret." <laughs> um, and so they've just like taken him off the list. So there it is. He's been expunged from the records, but he does still legally, uh, you know, have there is his still a green, green beret, beret in his coffin. Yeah, there is still. That. So if anyone wants a green beret, um, uh, he had his honorary law doctorate from the University of Leeds rescinded. Uh he also had an honorary doctorate from the University of Bedfordshire rescinded, which is like, come on, mads. Um he also had uh he, yeah, he was a freeman of the borough of Scarborough. Also had that removed in 2012. Um there's something funny to me about this to an extent where like all these people were like happy to give this like incredibly creepy dude all of these honors and then like are oh, they like, well, well you're no
1: longer welcome in Scarborough. And it's like <laughs> he's dead. <laughs> To me also, I think it speaks to the extent to which he was such a fixture of sort of like UK charity stuff that he was just, I don't know, I'm trying to think of an analog in the United States and I'm coming up blank, but like you think of the sort of like, like dark Regis Philbin kind of thing. Like he was somebody that was famous for being a TV personality, but also like whatever the charity thing involved was, like he was there, he was... He was the spokesman. Mm. He was a person who, like, was he was constantly, he was basically permanently known for his philanthropy. Yeah. And it, the best way to describe it is he's like J- Jared, Subway Jared did a Jimmy Savile speed run.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but the thing is that with Jimmy Savile is that, like, uh, this, like, damnatio memoriae of him has gone, like, extremely far. And it's, like, it's not unjustified, but it's just, it's kind of interesting the way in which, to the extent where, like, he doesn't have a headstone, his family had it removed when this came out. So he's just in, like, an unmarked grave. Like, this is, like, the level of, like, no one wants anything to do with this guy that we're talking about. Um, Do you want to hear the absolute funniest removal of an honor? Because. The way that they comment, it's just beautiful. Savile was honored with a papal knighthood by being made a knight commander of the Pontifical Equestrian Order of St. Gregory the Great by Pope John Paul in 1990. After the scandal broke, the Catholic Church in England and Wales asked the Holy See to consider stripping Savile of the honor. In October 2012, Father Federico Lombardi told BBC News, The Holy See firmly condemns the horrible crimes of sexual abuse of minors, and in light of recent information this honour should not have been bestowed as there does not exist any permanent official list of persons who have received papal honours in the past. It's not possible to strike anyone off a list that does not exist. The names of recipients of papal honours do not appear in the pontifical yearbook and the honour expires with the death of the individual So, basically, the Catholic Church said that Jimmy Savile was too much of a nonce (laughs) for their liking (sighs) Yeah. It's sort of amazing to me that the Catholic Church made that step without without feeling the need to put in any sort of caveat. Well, I mean... They were just like, we can't believe that a guy that was affiliated with the Catholic
1: Church... Their PR machine has gotten a lot of practice in this regard. So, I mean, I guess they figured better to not comment.
0: Yeah. I mean, oh boy. Um, So, yeah, that's Jimmy Savile. I feel like that's kind of like the gross part of the episode. I, th- I think, though, what is... Right. What's interesting about Savile and what he says about the 1970s is that a lot of other TV personalities from the 1970s were like as weird as Jimmy Savile. Yes. And some of them were pedophiles and some of them weren't. And it's quite, and like without knowing, it's quite hard. It's, it's like developing the theory of the British nonce is quite difficult because like there are a lot of people who like you think they must be, but they're totally not. And yeah, it's a very, like, so let's talk about some more british tv so i thought that like a good foundational place to start was dad's army uh nay i know you've i know you've seen some dad's army would I you have. like to explain it to american listeners dad's
1: army is a 19 early 1970s tv sitcom basically about a bunch of old men in world war ii who have been drafted to serve in the territorial army or the home guard basically yeah. their role is to defend britain in the event of a Nazi takeover of Britain or an attack on Britain they, they are, they are the, the, the home protection force, if you will. And, uh, they're all old and bumbling except for randomly. They have some young people who are in their, their unit as well, mm-hmm. who have just been assigned to serve in this unit. Um, and it basically just follows their the, the the big dynamic is that the their their company commander is served in the army in World War One but wasn't in combat and this is just like weird self-important buffoon. Their color sergeant is a was actually an officer in World War One as well and was decorated for actions in combat, but constantly has to be deferential to this complete idiot that's in charge of him and the rest of the formation uh basically the whole thing is a metaphor for the entirety of britain and the way that it works exactly and the thing i would say is that um dad's army started in the early 70s and ran ran i think like milo said into the early 80s but the thing about it is is it's in a way i think instrumental in explaining how everything that britain does or does not do and does or does not succeed in is always explained through the lens of world war ii even though we're getting to the point where there are very few people left alive who served in the armed forces in world war ii yeah it is absolutely foundational to a certain generation of british people primarily the boomers
0: yeah and what's interesting about dad's army is that it's very much intended as a parody of the absurdity of the kind of people who like think they fought in world war ii but didn't even as early as the 1970s like it is kind of it's a parody of like the absurdity of like the concept of you know the home guard and we're all in the army sort of thing when they're just like not at all that this kind of rabble of people with like not enough not enough weapons who have absolutely no concept of what would happen if the Germans actually invaded which is why I linked you to that particular episode which is where um, basically a detachment of German uh, U-boat <laughs> uh, like some U-boat officers and seamen are picked up Up by British fishermen after their U-boat sinks and they're brought to the coastal town where this unit of the Home Guard is based, and the Home Guard has to take them prisoner, but the Home Guard are so incompetent that they end up being taken prisoner by the German prisoners of war who manage to, by some chicanery, turn their own weapons on them. And it only the whole thing only gets kind of undone when the Germans are frog marching them down to the um down to the port to put them on a boat to Germany, and then like some actual regular soldiers show up and are like, what the fuck is going on? um but throughout this whole thing like the captain mannering the company commander is constantly like i've got this situation under control we will we'll simply will t- we'll turn tables on the jerry one when, when, at this precise point um yeah and then the only way the tables get turned on them is by just like confusion and things going wrong and this is sort of like the recurring idea of this is just like they only they only succeed by just getting lucky at the last moment which is such a perfect kind of laser point fucking satire of exactly what happened with these people that it's hard to do better almost.
1: I would say that Dad's Army as a show is similar to the American TV show MASH but MASH used the Korean War as a a lens to talk about the war in Vietnam mm. and I think there are boomers and Gen Xers who are, were really really big fans of MASH back in the olden mm. days but I feel like there is less of a fixation on, for one, there's there's not a fixation on talking about the war in Korea. In fact, the Korean War is probably the least talked about of modern American wars. Um, but also, I think that, like the, the way in which this sort short of,
0: review of the Korean War
1: this 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 was the this was such a generational moment. It seems with regard to to how people see themselves and see mm. what happened in Britain in World War II as well.
0: Yeah, because it's it's become like it's it's sort of not remembered as a parody in the same way. It's kind of become remembered as this sort of like jolly hockey stick spirit of the British home guard who would have resisted the Hitler to the end and it's like that's not what the show is about. The show is about how fucking stupid
1: they are. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I mean, people don't it was didn't run anywhere near as long obviously, but people don't you know reinterpret World War 1 because of the fourth season of Blackadder being about World War 1. No. It just to maybe it informs people's mental, you know, visual perception of what they think the war was like, but the whole thing is obviously a huge farce. Like that's that's the point. Uh it certainly doesn't make people turn around and say, Oh, I'm 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 re envisioning this patriotic success mm. because of, you know, Captain Blackadder and Private Baldrick and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Dad's army weirdly has kind of become the thing that people I don't know they that they think of that and Dunkirk and the Blitz, but like Dunkirk was nearly a disaster that was saved by, as Milo was famously pointed out, blokes who fish. And the Blitz was a fucking massacre. So it's yeah. weird. Yeah, and it's it's funny how people, that
0: people remember these events in this kind of like weird, like sort of mysterious mists of time way. Like, oh, well, you know, in the Blitz, in the Blitz, everyone did as they were told. And it's
1: like, no, they fucking didn't. No, they didn't. The government tried to put people in really insufficient bomb shelters or have them shelter at home. And it was through like massive unrest with people basically forcing the government to allow them to take shelter in the tube uh, because that was safer than the shit the government had built. Um... The extent to which, yeah, it's a misremembering, but I feel like what's important in bringing this up is that maybe if you're online, you'll perceive this, but certainly I feel like unless you live here, it's hard to understand how much in British media and popular culture, the notion of the blitz spirit and the Dunkirk spirit get invoked, even though, as we said before, there are very, very few people left alive who have any real adult memory of that my grandmother is still alive she's in her late 80s she was a child in the norwich blitz which was in 1941 i think or 42 mm. the london blitz was primarily in the, in 1940. 1940 yeah so like you think about like like i said my grandmother is almost 90 yeah she's still alive she was 6 years old in the norwich blitz
0: yeah, my grandmother's ninety two, and she remembers the Blitz pretty well. She would like sleep in the tube station and stuff, and then eventually she got evacuated to the countryside, uh, which the countryside then was Luton. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
1: yikes.
0: Um, uh, yeah, and it it's that's that's a whole interesting story with evacuation and like the way it went very differently for, to different people. Lots of child abuse has been involved in that as well. I was going to well.
1: say, I mean, the line "The Witch in the Wardrobe" is basically, if you're familiar with that story, the whole point is there are children who've been evacuated to the countryside. Yeah, because children just got placed in rural villages. Yeah. I mean, my grandma got really
0: lucky because she had like fucking eight siblings and they lived in a fucking tenement house in a room in Islington. And she got evacuated to some like wealthy, like practically like landed gentry family in Luton. So she had like a great time. But I think a lot of people got sent to like some fucking interesting some situations. Some nightmarish
1: places, yeah. And so yeah. so weirdly this this huge generational trauma in which the government, the country was basically face, facing hostile occupation a significant chunk of people in the country were actually pretty pro nazi and instead it's gotten mis- misremembered deliberate- deliberately misremembered or reremembered as this grand old thing that brought everyone together which i mean yeah we are now dealing with the weird byproducts of that.
0: Yeah, the boomers who were raised by the PTSD generation, um, and also inhaled a lot of leaded petrol fumes. It did, in fact. Um, but yeah, in conclusion, about Dad's Army, actually a good show, and it's like very much like quite a good satire of a certain kind of British worldview that, like, you know, the your sort of boomer dad is just going to like solve Hitler on his own. Um, and so, would we'll definitely recommend that if you've not seen it, it's worth checking. I think there's like lots of old episodes on YouTube. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like genuinely a well-made show That's like actually funny
1: And famously the song in the beginning Is not a real World War II patriotic song but it's so cloying and bad that you could be fooled into thinking that it is actually real.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It was made, especially for it's like the, the lyrics to which are, who do you think you're kidding? Mr. Hitler? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah. A, a, a believable British world war two song along with what was it? I I'm trying to work out now if the, uh, if the Hitler has only got one ball song was actually a real <laughs> world war two song. If that's a later interpolation, but that is a great, uh, yeah. Uh, Hitler has only got one ball. Uh, uh, Himmler has got something similar and poor
1: goebbels has no
0: balls at all
1: i will only say though that when you think about two world wars and one world cup the way that this stuff gets reframed into popular culture like it is definitely a thing people are still fucking dealing with uh we're constantly being reminded of it here in this country another thing we're constantly being reminded of is, is weird cultural artifacts of things that uh that you you don't necessarily know the history of like for example both in the film Joker which came out last year and also if you've ever gone to a sporting event ever in America you'll hear a song called Rock and Roll Part 2 by a British artist named Gary Glitter.
0: Ah oh, yes, now we're back into nonce territory again. Weird how that happens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to talk about Gary Glitter so much because he's kind of more boring because he kind of he he got into like nonce territory a bit later in life. Uh but basically he was like a big glam rock star of the 70s and 80s. Very famous, dressed in the way that glam rock stars do, i.e. mad um and then he kind of in the late 2000s actually no as in the, as early as the late 90s he got in trouble in the uk for child pornography and then he got in trouble for basically underage prostitution stuff in vietnam yeah he was, was prison in
1: vietnam yeah for a while
0: uh, yeah and then he came back to britain and he got in trouble again for something also kind of related so uh yeah he is uh yeah definitely var decision nonce um and like he was like a big pop star of that era Um, and a guy who was just like outwardly kind of like a weird dude and so sort of like there's kind of a theme developing here if we're to pull something out Um, so to like to take us back to kind of like uh, innocuous 1970s stuff um, we've got um, Morecambe and Wise which was that the first time you'd seen Morecambe and Wise yeah
1: do you have a reaction from Morecambe and Wise I mean it just seemed like Weird '70s vaudeville, I guess. I mean, like in a way that, yeah. I mean, I realize now from watching these things that you've sent me, all the stuff that that Mitchell and Webb look were parodying, right? Because some of that stuff, I mean, okay, it's objectively like absurd and funny in that regard if you watch it as an outsider. But then when you start to see how much of this is based on what TV was actually like in the '70s, mm-hmm. then you're like, man, this was all shit. This was really bad. Like, yeah. It's not funny. They were like
0: still working it out as a format. And I mean, and Morecambe and Wise is some of the best of it. I mean, like Morecambe and Wise again is one of those shows that's like much beloved. Like they still show it at Christmas time and like, it's a whole like, and those guys became like real like elder statesmen of British television. But it, I think your description of it as like a vaudeville act is kind of right. Like it, cause a lot of British TV of that era, I would say came out of like music hall culture from like the forties, fifties. Um, talk
1: about. You I don't really know that much about music hall stuff.
0: So music halls, um, well, I can talk about musicals and I don't know so much about music halls in the north, which I think were also a thing, but I'm not sure exactly what the tradition was there. Certainly London music halls like the Hackney Empire and the Palladium and stuff like that were uh, kind of like sort of working class entertainment, I guess, like certainly like places that my grandparents would have gone and uh, for what they would describe as a knees up, if you want a real, a real bit of fucking British terminology from back in the day there, um, real Cockney hours who up. Um, So they would And they were basically They were variety shows So they would be hosted By like an MC Who would kind of be Something between Just Like just a host And a comedian They would sort of Tell some jokes And they would do some Like riffs with the audience But the acts would be Like quite diverse They'd have like Singers Dancing acts Like magic acts uh, Comedy acts Like there could be Like a whole It was like true variety Mm -hmm. And it was just Sort of purely seen As like Just kind of like Go and be entertained By this mixed bag Of entertainment. entertainment um and so it's quite old-fashioned in that way just like here enjoy these mystery meats um and that was like a huge culture thing people went it was very like it was kind of cheap and fun sort of entertainment thing for working class people before like television or sort of like mass broadcast entertainment was as much of a thing because another important thing to note is that uh british broadcasting was like Exceptionally shit until like the late 1960s because there were really restrictive rules. Like, there was only the BBC, and there were very restrictive rules on what could be on the BBC. Basically, everything on the BBC was like, and now for an hour of crochet with, uh, Do- with Doris Wilders, uh, she's going to be talking about uh, different kinds of sewing that you can other things that women enjoy. So, please. Please watch that. Later will be the remembering the empire hour. Uh, yes, thank you. That, that that was basically the timbre of like all British broadcasting. Like they didn't have so now like they they invent they invented they uh it introduced Radio One in I think the late 1960s or maybe the early 70s, um, which became huge. And Radio One I think is still probably one of the biggest like pop radio stations in the world. And like Radio One plays like the flagship BBC radio station, and it plays like top 40 music basically yeah. um but until that point like all the the only music they played on like bbc radio would be kind of you know like almost like nursery rhyme type stuff or like classical music sort of like they would not allow anything that was kind of like hip or like of that era to be played and so everyone listened to pirate radio uh and where pirate radio got its name from is they would literally do it on boats from the english channel so i it Some listeners might have seen that film, The Boat That Rocked. Like that is absolutely, basically a true story. That's based on I think Radio Caroline and Radio Luxembourg, which were both like uh, really popular ships, which were just like moored in international waters.
1: um, (laughs) A preview of Things to Come.
0: Future, yeah. Um, And yeah, they would they would broadcast like just kind of like. High quality, like pop, and most of those DJs went on to become um like BBC radio DJs or like other kind of commercial radio DJs, like people like Tony Blackburn and other like super famous uh, British yeah, DJs. Yeah, like they came and from that people like
1: that. Yeah, I was mm. thinking about. I mean, it's weird to me because I only know about this because there is a huge disconnect, I think, between how shit British TV was in the seventies versus British music. A lot of stuff has endured a lot longer. Whereas, yeah. like, it seems to me that a lot of the stuff that was popular then. TV, film-wise, aside from a few standouts, it's mostly like Boomer Nostalgia Machine, yeah, yeah, versus yeah. it having any kind of like enduring appeal. So there's some there's
0: some more common Wise stuff that really like is kind of a bit ahead of its time like the one thing I didn't, uh, so that the, the sketch that I sent you, uh, the, the Andre Previn sketch is like one of the things that they're most known for where like Andre Previn being like one of the most celebrated composers at, at the time and they just get him on and he's like and he has to conduct them playing this song and then they're just doing it wrong but they keep blaming him and like a lot of the jokes in that are like quite clever is like they keep threatening him being like I am playing the right notes just not necessarily <laughs> Necessarily in, the in the right, right order, order. <laughs> um and like the way that that was like a popular thing they would do is they would get like a really famous celebrity on who would just like play along with being
1: humiliated by them essentially it's kind of like um, like a british version of laughing if, if you think about it i mean you've heard the story i've not seen La- it. that La- laughing was yeah, the was a tv variety show in america in the 70s and famously richard nixon went on laughing when he was president i think oh when he was fuck so- yeah i have when, heard about he's he like suck it to me like <laughs> yeah that's R- R- richard nixon yeah the president Oh you're playing the wrong notes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's um I think watching it, maybe because I don't have any cultural memory, like this isn't something that's familiar to me. Mm. It was just I'm struck by how incredibly old fashioned it seems. Yeah. How much it seems like a filmed vaudeville act as opposed to there are camera cuts and stuff like that, but there's not that many of them. Mm. It feels very much like you're watching a stage show. Yeah.
0: Well, and that's the thing. And those guys were like real, like live performers. Like, Morecambe and Wise, they were kind of known as comedians, but like they could both like tap dance. Like they, were, they could both like sit, like those guys were like fucking, they could do all of it. Like the whole fucking thing. They could like dancing, whatever, like do the sketches. Like they were kind of like, properly a relic of a bygone era even then but there was that transitional phase from like live entertainment to recorded entertainment um which they were sort of quite the middle of i would say probably a comedy show that endures slightly better which i think is from the later 70s into the 80s is the uh the two ronnie's with ronnie corbett and ronnie barker which was a sketch show which has a lot of kind of very very quoted sketches like the infamous there's an infamous sketch about a guy goes into a, a like a hardware store and he's trying to... And he asks for four candles. And the guy gives him four candles. And he's like, no. Four candles. Like, andles for forks. And then the guy... And then there's just, like... It's, like, an endless series of these confusions where he asks for peas. And the guy brings him, like, garden peas. But he wants, like, letter peas to, like, screw onto the wall. And then O's. And then he asks for O's. And the guy brings him a letter O. But he actually wants a hose. And, like, this is, like... Just, like, absurdist, <sighs> like, kind of shit. Yeah. But the, I think their most famous is probably the, the Mastermind sketch where... um the guy's specialist, there's a, there's a BBC uh, quiz show called Mastermind, and everyone has a specialist subject. Like, it's still on TV now. You have a general knowledge round, and then a specialist subject. And the guy's specialist subject is answering the question that was previously asked. And it's like, it's genuinely like an extremely clever sketch. The, like, the interplay of the questions and the answers and like the, I would recommend that to everyone if you go, if you'd put into Ronnie's Mastermind sketch. That is like if I was gonna recommend
1: you one bit from the seventies from the UK. Which is funny to me also because I think in the United States the thing that has endured the most is probably Monty Python. And that Uh, I do think that it's probably less so now because it's just it's an older thing. But like people Mm. my age, certainly like Gen Xers, people who grew up who would have been too young, even I mean, they probably would have been too young to watch it if they'd grown up in Britain. Mm. But people in the eighties and nineties in America, I remember my brother, my our public library, you could rent VHS cassettes. And I remember they had like the entirety of all of Monty Python, every season you could rent it. And my yeah. brother was a fan. He he liked Monty Python a lot. And he, over the course of the summer, like would just ride his bike to the library and like rent like two or three cassettes and bring mm. them home and watch them. And like two things I recall was that for all the memorable Monty Python sketches, so much of them are just shit, like total shit. Oh yeah, they were real throwing shit at the wall and seeing what stuck. Yeah, exactly. A lot of it got broadcast. Yeah, It's incredible. And also the thing that I think was the most disconcerting, well, I mean, People who know the show will know this, but like, there's a laugh track that doesn't correspond to what's happening. It's just like a like they put like a record on in the studio of like recorded laughter. So like the audience laughter has no correspondence with what's going on on screen. which awesome. is If you aren't expecting that, as like in my case, an eleven year old, you're like, what the fuck is going on? But it's then like also the
0: Philip Glass of comedy, just like nothing makes any sense.
1: But also another thing too is that um it was always interesting to me was it reveals how old this stuff is and how how mm. how, how long ago this was. Is that if you watch Monty Python stuff that's filmed in the stage looks. I'm going to say new, but it doesn't look hideously out of date. Yeah. Whereas the stuff that's filmed outdoors, it might as well be like the fucking Zapruder film from JFK's assassination. <laughs> like it's just complete dog shit quality. And that's yeah. the thing that really, I mean, it, it makes you realize just how, I don't know, like of like a fledgling medium it was, which in America, I think people more associate with the 60s, the 50s to some extent, but like TV, most people in America didn't have TVs in the 50s. But mm. the 60s, like that's sort of like, the real kind of like fledgling medium of TV whereas it seems like that decade of that sort of transitional decade happened more so here
0: yeah yeah well, I mean you know in this in the 60s was when people were just starting just starting to buy a TV off the back of Dave Courtney's van <laughs> you know, <that> was when- <laughs> well, by
1: the by the by the end of the 70s I mean you had stuff like I Claudius and stuff like that like full-on. Produced TV dramas and things like that. I think in
0: the 70s was like a real, yeah, a big big transitional phase in British television. It's interesting that you bring up Monty Python. I think that Monty Python is like, it's a sort of, uh, it's a show that a lot of people in Britain like really enjoyed and it's very, it's very like popular, but it doesn't, it hasn't sort of endured in that kind of like cultural institution way that some of these things have like i think particularly for that generation like stuff like more and wise and uh yeah two ronnie's and things like that is more kind of ingrained in a kind of cultural consciousness than monty python is whereas monty python was more like of a kind of certain cultural milieu it's a thing people like but there's um i mean like all dad's army even is a great example because like there's a started around
1: the same time
0: Yeah, and there's that, in the episode I sent you, there's the incredibly famous scene where the German officer starts getting annoyed that everyone keeps saying all these, like, insulting things about Hitler. And he says, like, Right, I am making a list, and then when we are all back in Germany, you will stand trial for these things which you have said. And he starts putting people's names on the list. And then uh, Pike, who's like the kind of, like, idiot private, begins singing this song about how Hitler is a twerp. And then he goes your name will also go on the list. What is it? And Captain Mannering says, don't tell him Pike. And then the German officer is like, Pike. And this is like, I think if you like, you can almost go up to anyone in Britain over the age of like 30 and quote, don't tell him Pike at them. And they will know exactly like it is like, properly like fully and deeply ingrained in the consciousness
1: almost to the extent of like calling scandals gate like that degree of like Mad. i mean i'm just trying to think of something from the early 70s in america on tv that would still be that embedded with people like say my age or yeah i don't really know i mean it's it's tough to think of like yeah it's but i mean it's weird because yeah you do have that direct sort of that lens to look at and say okay well in the u.s at the same time we have a show that's about the korean war that's really like a commentary on Vietnam. And then in Britain, we have a show that's just like, oh, wasn't World War II a laugh? Yeah. <laughs> it's just weird how that's like refracted over time. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, in a way that, I mean, the boomer fixation on the Vietnam War is a huge thing in America. Like, that has governed so many fucking things. Even to this day, you still have some of like the, the, the echoes of that in the way war films are made or like the Rambo franchise still fucking happening and stuff like that. Mm. You know what I mean? But in Britain, you didn't have that no you didn't have that and you and the one major- and Gaz and
0: gas didn't get to go and fight in a war so they had to imagine it and that reflects in some ways the different psychoses of the british and american boomer
1: exactly yeah because think about that i mean the old the closest thing you have is the falkland islands War, which was in the 80s so by that point most yeah. boomers were probably too old and it, when there was no draft was, it was fought by professional soldiers and it was it was over in what six weeks i mean it was a very very quick thing yeah. um I think the Britain didn't the British army. I think sent troops to the Gulf War, but also a day a war that lasted four days.
0: Yeah, again, professional soldiers like not. It didn't.
1: It just wasn't a a universal cultural phenomenon the way that the previous wars were. And when the United yeah. States, you had the draft, so like Vietnam was a much more universalized thing. And it was applied in an equal and fair way. Exactly, exactly, which is why why Ted Nugent and Dick Cheney and George W. Bush all served proudly in combat in Vietnam. They definitely yeah. didn't shit themselves in the draft board. That's Ted Nugent. They definitely <laughs> didn't just completely blow it. i get like five deferments. And then when asked why you didn't serve in Vietnam, Dick Cheney say, I had better priorities. Uh, yeah. Just really normal stuff. Normal stuff. Normal stuff. Yeah, yeah exactly. Better priorities than defending democracy, Dick. <laughs> Damn. Um, the one good thing Dick Cheney ever did is not go to Vietnam, basically. Well, exactly.
0: And then I think the other thing you need to know about British TV from the 70s is, of course, the game shows, which are completely mad i mean one of the game shows i've included here is actually from the early 80s but it's so 1970s it's called bullseye and i think we've talked about it on trash future before but it's hosted by jim bowen who is like this kind of 1970s like comedian guy who's gotten this gig on tv hosting and is like a proper like working men's club comedian and again is like kind of like Sort of gives off a slightly a slightly odd vibe, but is like definitely like not a nonce, like not he's not he in doesn't that. Doesn't give off a, a Jimmy Savile vibe at all, though. That's no, not. but it's similarly in that kind of like personality milieu. And this show is just absolutely bizarre. It's like they the contestants have to play darts. And then depending on, and various rounds where they score points and then they can, like, if they hit certain bits on the dartboard, they win prizes. But the prizes are all just, like, absolute dog shit. Like, the best prize you can win is, like, a lawnmower in most of these (laughs) rounds. But then at the end, there's always, like, a grand prize where they can gamble all of the prizes that they've won to have a shot at this grand prize. And the show was notorious for having just, like, Bizarre grand prizes. Like, you've got these two guys who've come for the, from their fucking like council flat to play this darts game show. And then the grand prize is like, it's a speedboat. <laughs> it's like, what are these motherfuckers going to do with a speedboat? <laughs> but yeah, this show was notorious for having speedboats as prizes. I, I don't know why, but like, just
1: it's a surreal thing to watch. You showed me also uh, the British Price is Right. The gen- and what, what, what surprised me about that was the host. Had that, I I don't have a great British person to compare it to, but I'm reminded of like Vincent Price. He had that like old timey entertainer energy in a way that like that has kind of gone away in America. Like mm. even people, you know, because the, the big the big generational guy on TV. I, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe maybe going out on a limb to make a claim this broad, but I would say it's Johnny Carson. Mm-hmm. And Johnny Carson's demeanor is way more of like he's like the the the, the, the funny like you know you you can't bullshit me jack kind of tv guy but it's not the same as like johnny carson's kind of more of a chat show guy right so yeah yeah, but i mean it it wasn't a variety show but he was a comedian i mean like you think about um johnny carson's sort of like the guy that 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 was sort of his understudy who then took over his show was david letterman and you know like that it's jokes and stuff but it's not a sketch comedy show it is a talk show but like that is the more of like the when you think of people hosting uh you know any any game show in America it kind of draws on that but like just this was a show from 1997 that you showed me. Yeah. it still felt very like oh I've just come in from the country. Oh my arms tired like so, that kind of thing. It's very so. Yes. Yeah, so the tiny. person you're
0: referring to is Bruce Forsyth,
1: and I, I I put in the
0: Prices Right because it's kind of Forsyth that is most Forsyth and like again huge personality from the 70s who continued to be a like massive TV staple until he died quite recently a couple of years ago. Um, so he uh, American viewers uh, who've watched uh, the British Strictly Come Dancing might be familiar with Bruce Forsyth because he hosted that for like quite a lot of seasons. Um, He also music hall guy, right? This guy is like Bruce Forsyth can like sing, dance, all that shit. But he like kind of has made his name as a TV presenter. Um, And in the seventies, they got him to host this uh, game show called The Generation Game, which was like conceived as they stole it from some Dutch format, which is just deeply cursed for a number of reasons. Much of things they took didn't take in the original. Yeah. oh Black you push. get to win this shoe polish um, but yeah so that um, and it's like they play all these like stupid games they'll get like families on there to compete and then like the prizes were like deliberately dog shit I actually listened to this recently and they were talking about they had a discussion amongst the presenters other uh, the producers about the prizes so they were saying like it's like Saturday night like primetime TV and like the stuff you can win is like a toaster and they were like and then they said the prizes have to be shit or the show won't be entertaining enough And it's like because the people have to do these stupid things which they will fail to do. And if like, and if they and if they're failing to win something like actually good, people will feel too sorry for them and it won't be funny. And they're like, so they need, the prizes need to be dog shit. That's like an important part of it. So it's like a really like deliberate conceptual point. And the, the really famous bit about Generation Game is like towards the end of the game, the family that's won, there's a round where one of them has to sit and watch a conveyor belt of prizes. And then they can win all the prizes that they remember so uh the conveyor belt and it's like always well, just like a cuddly toy a six-piece fondue set and there's like just like going past and you see them like they're sat behind the conveyor belt and they're like looking directly into the camera and it's like deeply again it feels like someone's come up with it for a sketch about 1970s television and yet it's completely real
1: it's incredible i mean it there really <laughs> is i do feel like I, the reason I know what I know about Britain in the 70s is just because I've read a couple of books about it because it is a subject matter that, like, it's this pivotal moment. Like, it goes from, you know, you you have effectively, like, a post-war consensus to Thatcherism. You know, in the beginning of the decade, you start with, like, a Tory prime minister who's basically like, we're going to have more funding for the NHS, you know, ah. to, by the end, you have Thatcher who's just like, you know, what if we, what like, what, what, what if we do Pinochet but in Britain? Like, mm. weird how that works. And it's... There is such a change, but also I feel like it's such a foundational thing. And every time you hear British celebrities or British, mm. you know, Canadians, actors, TV people, they always talk about how everything was so bad in the 70s. And I feel like this echoes because so much of what we saw, you know, leading up to the the, the grand defeat we experienced or not grand defeat, the total dog shit fucking defeat we experienced at the end of the election last year. The big hark and cry was basically Jeremy Corbyn wants to take Britain back to the 70s. And you have to understand that in the boomer imagination, that is bad.
0: Yeah, you're going to have to be guessing cuddly toys off a fucking conveyor belt. Exactly. The best you can hope for is a fondue set, mate. You might win a
1: speedboat, but you'll have nowhere to sail it. Yeah. And the irony is that Britain was actually pretty good in the 70s. Yeah. Income inequality reached its lowest point post-war in Britain in like 1976.
0: Yeah, like pretty much anyone could get social housing. Like it was like it was a reasonably good time to be British. And if you couldn't get social housing, housing didn't cost that much money. Yeah. I like mean, as a multiplier of average earnings it was like
1: the big thing was inflation, but the thing about it was is that inflation doesn't really affect people when it, I mean it affects people in terms of prices mm. but Inflation makes it a great
0: time to get a mortgage.
1: Yeah, exactly. But if you're somebody who has a lot of savings, has a lot of like cash investment, yeah, yeah, yeah. or you're somebody who uh, who you know is 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 profiting off of that, like it's a bad time. Like if you're the person who's buying and selling products, like yeah, things aren't great. But I mean, obviously, inflation caused problems. But I mean, to get in consideration, people complain about you know mild social democratic policies, potentially like, oh, well, inflation might go up in Britain. Well, inflation basically legally has to stay at 2% or lower in the United Kingdom. In 1978, uh, Jim Callahan, the, the labor prime minister, their goal was just keep inflation under 10%. To mm. give you an idea of like, how different of a world it was. And what happened was, is there was just a series of industrial actions that led to pay rises, which led to the winter of discontent and basically... If Labour had just called an election in October of 1978, they probably would have won. We probably... they That was right about the time the North Sea oil and gas money started rolling in. We'd probably live in a country closer to Norway, but instead, like, uh, how to describe... The British version of, I don't know, fucking God, Barry Goldwater, hmm. won the Prime mini- Ministership, and we now just live in the consequences of that. Yeah. I mean, I think,
0: though what what people have to remember about thatcher and amongst other things is that like i don't think i don't think thatcher you can really compare with barry i mean i don't know that much about barry goldwater but i mean barry goldwater was like very much an extremist whereas like thatcher wasn't really an extremist thatcher was just like an effective right-wing leader and like thatcher knew exactly how much she could get away with like thatcher it was like way to the left of the current crop of like Tory people who are like less maligned than Thatcher in the public consciousness because people remember the things that happened on Thatcher. But like Thatcher was like way more pragmatic than like, you know, your current bunch of Tories like Thatcher would like would have been horrified by the concept of Brexit because Thatcher was like a money person, right? Like Thatcher cared about the fucking the trade deals and like that. And that's why she was so successful, because she won the trust and confidence of like a coalition of the British people who were like, oh, this woman's going to make us rich. Where it like as opposed to like your kind of like border like trump type people who are kind of like mad like id like they satisfy a certain kind of like rabid right wing desire to own the libs but they don't they they can't have the same longevity because they simply don't they don't like earn trust in the same way as like your kind of like effective right wing psycho.
1: I will say in Thatcher's first premiership, it was widely understood that it was a massive failure. She was considered incredibly right wing. She was her becoming the 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 Tory labor the Tory party leader was uh was considered a huge misstep because mm. she was so extreme given the politics of the day. Yeah, And uh, Labor under Michael Foote was pulling it like 22 points ahead for a significant amount of time. Two things changed. The Libs formed a splinter party and a bunch of Labor and Peace quit and joined it. And th- 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 thus well, becomes, that's never happened again. Thus, becoming the Lib Dems and sapping some of Labor's vote. And then the, the Falklands War happened. And uh, had, had the election happened, bef- had the Falklands War not happened, uh, labor would have massively, def- or also if the SCP-LP hadn't split, yeah, it, it would have been different. But you yeah. know what? You really, you
0: have to hand it to Thatcher for reading the room on the Falklands War. It was like the, I that that war just fascinates me so much that like the the Argentines thought that the, they kind of had this idea in their heads that they could invade this like little British territory in the middle of nowhere, and that, that and that Thatcher just wouldn't care and like the extent to which she completely was just like yeah just send the fucking fleet just like it like 2 hours later um and it's just one of the most bizarre geopolitical incidents to have ever cuz that was their entire game plan they were just like the british just won't defend it
1: yeah and uh we should do an episode on the on the Falklands war because it is Oh, so much fascinating shit.
0: Yeah, just like it is such a real G.I. Joe, like mad, like there's not going to be another war for a while. We'd better have fun with it. Levels of just like mad stuff going on there.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a whole wild story. So that would be, I guess, yeah. be that our 80s episode, that 80s episode. But, yeah. uh, and of
0: course, it involves the French.
1: It does. It um, does. And uh, a, a ship named after an Argentine general that did not meet a happy fate.
0: No, indeed. Um, As just like a coda to this, I will say something else about uh, uh, Bruce Forsyth. Because um, Bruce Forsyth, I think, is possibly of like British celebrities of that era, is the one who has had like the most enduring effect on British culture. He's like had proper like elder state. I'm not surprised I didn't give him a fucking state funeral. Like the extent to which that guy had like an almost like 60 year career in show business is mental. And like he was famous having all these catchphrases which have sort of endured as like, so one of his big things was that, because uh, I think this was from the Generation game, he would cause he sort of had this kind of slightly weird, like kind of cockney voice, and he'd come in and go, good game, good game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and from Price's had higher or lower, higher or lower. Um, <laughs> but his huge thing was he would come out on stage and he would go, nice to see you, to see you. And then they would shout nice back at him um and i nate i fucking guarantee you if you walked out on stage at any comedy club in the uk as an mc even now with a room full of people who are like under 30 and went out there and went nice to see you to see you they would shout nice back at you even though no one has said that on television in like 30 years
1: that is so fucking weird man
0: yeah this is like fucking deep level like like Bruce Forsyth is a kind of British MK Ultra. Like,
1: he is so
0: he is more ingrained in the British psyche than almost any of the actual government propaganda efforts.
1: One thing that I think that many people not, not I mean a lot of the younger fans might not, but if you've seen the film Trainspotting, the Danny Boyle film from nineteen ninety-six, there's a part in the film in which um, Ewan McGregor's character, Mark, is uh, going through withdrawal. His parents force him to basically lock up in his room and go mm. through heroin withdrawal. And he starts hallucinating wildly. And in one of the scenes, his whole family is on a deeply cursed British game show. Like, and he sees himself <laughs> and his parents. Are like, on his parents are always watching these fucking game shows in their flat in Edinburgh. Yeah. And uh, he sees, like, he envisions his parents as contestants on this show. And I feel like, as an outsider watching that, like, you you come away from this sort of benign thing. But if you realize that's making reference to. Those kinds of quiz shows and game shows were are not just still popular but were incredibly popular at a time, and that they were just I don't want to say shabby, but like in retrospect they seem shabby they seem weird and shabby and unpolished and just generally kind yeah.
0: of even game shows when I was growing up in the nineties like we had like family fortunes and stuff, but it was hosted by like Keith Chegwin and like it's a knockout and stuff like that, just like really yeah, just like really like low rent. Uh, like, well, like Chris Evans, the guy who went on to eventually host the like weird soy boy version of top gear. Um, he was on a show in the nineties called, uh, 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 TGI Friday. And it was just like dog shit. Like when they had that beef f- fad in the nineties for having like in Britain anyway, like really like madcap television, uh, where it would be like, Oh, it's a chat show, but there's all this crazy stuff going on. Um, and so they just, all these people in the 90s became really big celebs off the back of just being, like, simpering morons, but who were, like, really enthusiastic. And, like, that is the whole, like, Chris Evans trajectory. It's just him going, like,
1: hey, hey! You know what we missed out we didn't talk about for Britain in the 70s? What?
0: Benny Hill. Oh, Benny Hill. Well, that kind of started earlier, but, uh... Benny Hill, I believe, not a nonce, surprisingly. <laughs>
1: uh, maybe a
0: sex pest. Maybe we don't a know. sex pest, yeah, but I don't I don't believe. An entire
1: show about him being a sex pest? Yeah. Could he be a sex pest in real life? Yeah.
0: We don't know. And he's he was he's also massive in Russia. They fucking love Benny Hill in Russia. I mean he is long dead, but yeah, the yeah, Benny Hill man. Benny Hill another person we missed out is Rolf Harris. Uh, a man so Australian, he became British. Um, <laughs> As nonce, does. VAR decision uh, nonce very much has gone to jail for noncing. Um, he he had a show where he used to, amongst other things, where he used to, like, paint paintings and then went, they were, like, really bad and would then, like, turn to the camera and go, can you guess what it is yet? <laughs> <laughs> Another catchphrase isn't in jail. He's also credited with inventing a, a musical instrument called the wobble board. He was kind of like, he was like known for like playing music, but always something weird like the didgeridoo or whatever. And there's one where he just used to get a sheet of metal and just like wobble it into a microphone. Um, yeah, honestly, Britain in the 1970s, we could do 10 episodes on it, but you only get one.
1: Well, the only thing I'm just going to say is Google Watney's party seven. Look at the size of the can. Look at the hand it's being held in and notice, yes, it's the size of a can of paint from the hardware store. It's got 7 pints in it, and you can pour out 7 beers for your friends or you can drink exactly. the whole goddamn thing yourself cuz You can have exactly
0: 7 friends.
1: Exactly. No no more, no less. So it's not sus. Anyway, this has been Britonology. Milo, thank you again for illuminating yeah. so much of the history and culture of this bizarre island I've chosen to move to for some reason
0: yeah I mean uh, thank you Nate for indulging me Uh, I would say that it has been nice to see you to see you nice (laughs) exactly (laughs) thanks for listening guys